0: All right, welcome back to Instagram Live. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum with Barbell Medicine. Uh, Drew Singh says, I lose brain cells when you don't post vlogs. I lose brain cells when I don't post vlogs. Is doing leg extension machine bad for your knees? Nope. Welcome back to Instagram Live or YouTube if you're watching this in the future. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum of Barbell Medicine. It is Monday, November 18th. We're doing Instagram Live. I'm trying to get in the habit of doing these more often and then subsequently hosting them on YouTube if uh, there's good stuff there. Uh, so as you know, Black Friday's coming. We've got some Black Friday deals uh, that you guys and gals are going to like. So be on the lookout for um, information about that. If you're subscribed to our newsletter, you're gonna get first dibs on that. If you're not subscribed to our newsletter, you should do that because we have a spicy new newsletter going out uh, believe it's scheduled to send tomorrow. Also have some new content coming up with, uh, Alan Flanagan, uh, on our podcast. And then in a long form article that I wrote about the science of red meat intake, but what we're doing here is a Q and a question and answer. So you submit questions, ideally I'll try to answer them to the best of my ability. And, uh, we'll just have a conversation. All right. We're going to try to find some questions so that I can provide some answers. Oh, last announcement. If you're Really hankering for some new Barbell Medicine gear. We've got the baseball tees are in stock. The competition tees are in stock. And our singlets are on pre-order right now. SBD and Barbell Medicine partnering up together to bring you some sweet, sweet Barbell Medicine singlets, which are indeed IPF and USAPL legal because, uh, yeah, every year I pay to make sure that our logo uh, is uh, is approved. So check those things out over on the website. All right, back to the questions. Let's go. Sup, dude? How's training going? Uh, So, yeah, actually... Uh, this probably is the last week of this developmental block. Uh, it was about four weeks, which is a normal amount of time for me. so a developmental block is effectively, uh, really trying to develop strength. And then ideally you either transfer it, uh, to a more specific block afterwards to like display, be able to display, uh, very specific strength performances, uh, for a powerlifter, lifter to be squat bench deadlift. Um, or you enter in another developmental block you can do either one. That's just, you know, broad strokes kind of thing. So yeah, um, training is going reasonably well. Uh, I just, uh, it's time for me to do a pivot, uh, and then go back to another developmental block. Cause I need to pick another meet so that I can actually, uh, compete again. So yeah, the plan is to, uh, go up a weight class, one Oh five, and compete at USAPL Raw Nationals next year. It was a really cool experience going to USAPL National Raw Nationals this year in Lombard, Illinois. If you haven't checked our vlog yet, do that. Had a blast. Level of competition was amazing. The venue uh, was really, really decked out. SBD and Rogue and uh, USAPL and the people they worked with to put on the whole deal. They all, all did great and uh, the atmosphere was great. So I'd like to be a part of it next year and uh, yeah so we'll see that's the that's the big plan i don't know if that's the first time i ever talked about that but that's what's going on um so yeah training's going well i think again this uh today and this week actually is going to be uh the last week of this developmental block and then uh see what the future holds for the next next training block jordan i got cycling shoes and i've kept my rogue echo bike the same height and have knee pain they're clip-ins what should i do uh, so I think what you're asking me is that since you've switched to clip-in pedals on your Rogue Echo bike, you have knee pain. Uh, I don't necessarily know that they're related. Uh, I'd be more curious about what the rest of your training looks like and then how much volume or uh, which would be duration um, and uh, also what the intensity is of your cycling. So the first question would be: Is there any cycling that you can do on the Rogue Echo bike or on a regular bicycle that doesn't hurt? If so, like what are the characteristics that are different between that and when you do have pain? Um, then I'd be looking at your total training load and um, the context of your the environmental stress, uh, and this all uh, purports or you know is in the context rather of um, you actually having very significant knee pain. I mean, if it's you know a three on a scale of one to 10, I I don't know that I care. Uh, and then, you know, final, final thing just off the cuff, uh, uh, without knowing anything more about you, uh, would be, um, when was the last time you were able to do that activity without knee pain? Um, and then kind of what's changed since then. So most of the time, uh, knee pain when, with respect to cycling is generally due to, and actually with resistance training is usually a, load management problem and I don't mean load when I uh, when I say load I don't mean weight uh, that's part of the external load external load would be objective metrics things like load range of motion velocity uh, total volume etc what I mean is internal load so internal load is the load that's actually placed upon the lifter or the individual um, which is the external load that's filtered through the individual characteristics of the person so they're previous training, their preparedness to train, their motivation to train, their expectations about what the training is going to feel like and what it's going to do to them. Um, environmental stress, which is not just like, you know, humidity, temperature, wind, whatever, but like what's going on in your life, all these things, your genetics, it is again, it sort of filters the external load to determine the internal load, which is ultimately, uh, what gets transmitted into, uh, either fatigue or fitness adaptations. And so, If you're having a bunch of pain that's cropped up out of nowhere, I think the road that I'd go down is load management and see kind of what do we need to do to get you um, back in the game. And then as far as practically how to do that, uh, usually backing off uh, external load, um, uh, which in this case would be intensity, volume, um, and, and things of that nature, in addition to education would be kind of the first steps there. So. Long answer, but hopefully useful, right? Any negatives to only squatting with a belt? Um, I mean, if you wanted to get better at squatting without a belt, uh, you might want to practice that as a specific skill, although you will still improve your squatting strength without a belt when you train only with a belt. I just view it as a training tool, right? Some people say, oh, it's a crutch. It's like, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of mental things that we do. Uh, mental strategies we do to kind of uh, uh, decrease our fear about a particular movement or a particular set at a particular weight. Um, using a belt is is one of them. the The data right now suggests that using a belt increases bar velocity and improves the efficiency, basically keeping the bar path a little more a uh, little straighter. Um, so, as far as can you be a very strong individual and never, and never use a belt? Sure. Um, you'll just likely lift less weight than if you. Uh, used a belt and got good at, uh, using the belt. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you're never going to compete, I don't know that it matters. Um, but yeah, as far as what does a belt do upstairs? Yeah. I think that's a deeper story, <laughs> a more complex story. And, uh, yeah, I think overall for somebody who's really interested in lifting weights, getting strong, etc., I think using a belt on your most important exercises on the heaviest sets, Uh, and getting good at that seems to be a good idea. I would also help control the external load by doing some sets beltless, uh, particularly on less important exercises. Um, And, you know, that's kind of how I manage it. On the other hand, you could use the belt for all of those exercises too and live a full and complete life. You know, um, the the idea that you're gonna get less abdominal uh, muscle recruitment has been debunked. You'll actually get more. What happens is, You're able to contract the muscles a little harder, and they're also being pressed against the belt as they are contracting. So the intramuscular pressure increases, which increases motor unit recruitment. So you tend to actually recruit a little bit more muscle mass. The extent to which that imparts a more significant training effect, I don't know. Um, and I don't think anybody else knows either, meaning that we don't have like hypertrophy study outcomes uh, as far as I'm aware of, or or other strength outcomes uh, where they're actually testing abdominal strength in a reliable manner. So hopefully that makes sense. Uh, let's see, Doc, do you ever use heart rate HRR percentage when prescribing cardiovascular, Ugh. Wow, I just had like a pure language stroke. Um, doc, do you ever use heart rate at this? I don't know what HRR percentage is. Are you talk about heart rate reserve or just heart rate percentage, like heart rate percentage of a, a particular, of your max to prescribe cardiovascular exercise. Uh, no, I don't. Yeah. Um, one, uh, I just feel like it doesn't encapsulate enough of the individual's internal load. So one way to actually measure the physiological response to exercise the actual, in, uh, internal load is by measuring, uh, heart rate, you can do that. Um, that being said, I don't think that that's an accurate, uh, as accurate of a predictor as RPE. So I prefer using RPE for uh, not only resistance training, um, and, uh, uh, but also for cardio, uh, cardiorespiratory uh, training as well. So uh, you can do reps in reserve also for resistance training. That that kind of works, but RPE is uh, I think a better way to uh, measure um, the internal load that somebody's actually experiencing. Thoughts on a recent podcast about doctors and stating that only men 50 to 59 with history of MI benefit from statins. I mean, that's demonstrably not true on literally every level. So, for instance, young individuals with a history of uh, familial hypercholesterolemia benefit, and this is as young as people, you know, I I think in the adolescent years. Um, Literally, a study just came out showing. Substantial benefit to those individuals on statins. Familial hypercholesterolemia—you effectively produce way too much uh, uh, atherogenic uh, lipoprotein, um, which carries around cholesterol, or uh, you know, a lipid and a protein. Um, there's cholesterol uh, molecules in there. Uh, in any event, statins been shown to improve mortality. Uh, basically reduces the risk of uh, early mortality and also the burden of disease. Also, that's, again, from teenagers with that all the way up to very uh, to, to people in their 20s and 30s who have risk factors for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Again, that's for primary prevention, so preventing the first atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease event, which includes MI, a heart attack, a stroke, TIA, peripheral artery disease, uh, acute coronary syndrome, all of these things, so for primary prevention and for secondary prevention, people who already have, diagnosed, have been diagnosed with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, statins can be useful. Um, so, I mean, whoever said that is just not qualified to speak on those things, and I probably wouldn't listen to them on something that they're clearly not an expert in. And this stuff is covered pretty well in uh, the new article that's going to go up hopefully uh, either tomorrow or Wednesday titled The Science of Red Meat Intake. Any advice on residency interviews? I thought residency interviews were a lot uh, lower key than uh, med school interviews. Med school interviews, you know, everybody's just trying to get in, right? Residency interviews, it seems like people are just trying to figure out if they like you uh, and if they want to work with you for the next, you know, three to however many years. Um, it's weird in every residency and medical school interview that I ever did, they always ask me how much I bench pressed. So maybe your experience will be different than mine. Um, but yeah, I think you you should know a little bit about the program, um, that you're going to go interview at. So, you know, what their specialties are, interests are, if there are any, um, and then, uh, you should, you know, if you have any questions about, um, like the schedule. So for instance, something, if you're like doing a family medicine, you might ask how many ICU rotations do you have? When you know, do the second years get to act as senior residents on when they're on wards, something like that? Just stuff that you'd that actually matters. On the other hand, it's hard to really know if you're going to be in a good residency program or a bad residency program just from your interviews. Uh, You can talk to other residents and see if you can suss out good and bad, but yeah, most people aren't going to tell you that their residency program is bad. That's uh, that's a lot of cognitive dissonance there. So I would just try to uh, you know kind of get a feel for the working environments that you'll be in which you get to tour and then also uh just what the residents are like because you're gonna have to work with with them most of the time yeah thoughts on uh asked to grass heavy squats they're a perfectly valid way to squat if you want to get better at those type of squats on the other hand if you just want to go down to below parallel that's fine too you know depth is kind of this arbitrary level if you're not going to compete so it exists upon a, upon a spectrum of like, you know, you want to do loaded hip and knee flexion, ground based loaded hip and knee flexion, through some range of motion that you can keep consistent, um, and you know, should you go an inch below parallel or right at parallel? What are the big training differences that you see there? Well the strength that you gain is gonna be specific to the range of motion you train in. And you can make a case for going to parallel or slightly below parallel from a uh, muscle training economy standpoint, because you're gonna get more adductor, more glute uh, once you go just below parallel. But if you go even deeper than that, you don't really get any more uh, you know, motor unit recruitment or muscle mass being trained. You just are training the same amount of muscles through a different range of motion so that you get stronger at different muscle lengths. So what's, again, what's the best? I think it depends on your goals. And if you're not a competitive lifter, I don't know that it matters. Yeah, all right. If a lifter likes using ammonia or other external things for hype at a meet, how would you recommend using them at tra- in training? I pr- probably wouldn't, yeah. If you know that you like them already, that's cool. Just you you use them at a meet. I think in training, most 99% of your sessions are just putting in work, developing strength. If the performance on a particular strength workout or lift for a particular day is more important than the training effect, which, you know, maybe you're a week out from a meet, maybe that's the case, but it's not It's not typical, uh, then sure, use all the hype, use all the ammonia, but I think just save it for the meet. Yeah, people don't need to over overthink this. Hey, Jordan. If I'm around 20 to 24% body fat, can I gain strength from uh, linear periodization on a cut? Sure. Yeah. The strength response and weight gain or loss are not that tightly correlated. Uh, you know, obviously the extent that you're going to compromise lean body mass accrual via a cut or losing weight, um, you know, sure. That might compromise your total uh, strength improvement in the short term. But in the long term, you're benefiting your health um, because 20 to 24 percent body fat is, you know, fairly high. I would I would wager that your waist circumference is in excess of where it should be. And you're probably carrying too much uh, adipose tissue, which uh, is deleterious to health outcomes. Um, So what I would do, yeah, is most of the time tell people to get their weight and their waist circumference down to within spec. And then if they want to gain more lean body mass, go for it. Particularly if getting strong in, um, you know, the low rep range is very important to them, then sure, lean, increasing lean body mass is going to be a part of the process. But I would not sacrifice one's health in the short term just to get stronger in the short term um, in some arbitrary rep range. Uh, and basically, it is very problematic to be carrying too much body weight. For in both the short and the long term, and evidence suggests that when people gain weight, particularly they gain excess adipose tissue, they have a hell of a time losing it. Uh, if you could just easily lose the weight later, if that was an easy thing to do for people to not only lose the weight, but then keep it off, uh, <laughs> the obesity epidemic would be uh, you know, much smaller problem than it actually is. So most people, when they gain adipose tissue, are unable to lose it or unable to keep it off. That's, you know, the actual facts of this. This YouTube vlog or Instagram live brought to you by Topo Chico. I wish that, you know what? Look, if you work for Topo Chico, call me up, sponsor me. I'm just, I, I literally held the bottle here. I, I, you know, the logo probably wasn't facing the camera, so maybe I'm an amateur here. But it is good stuff. I like this water. I like it because it hurts. When I drink it, it like hurts a little bit. I want that. Uh, you mentioned before that you were doing a paper on CBD oil. Yes, I did. What were the highlights of your findings? Uh, that there's very, very little data suggesting that it works in humans outside of uh, these very rare congenital seizure disorders. Period. Uh, The data that we do have on it, particularly well-controlled, well-designed trials, suggests that it's not very helpful with respect to the things it's often touted to uh, improve. Things like pain, things like uh, anxiety, things like depression, things like uh, sleep disorders or insomnia, things like appetite, nausea, etc., um, and so a lot of these things, yeah, there's just not data on it. Um, and the data that does exist is not either not done in humans or is just th- like this sort of theoretical, uh, link between some physiological concept and, you know, an active ingredient in CBD, but the stuff we do have data on like actual data, it's just not good. And then the, that's just from like, assuming you're getting pharmaceutical CBD, uh, can- uh, uh cannabidiol. Which you're certainly not, unless you have again one of these two very rare um, uh, seizure disorders, or you're being uh, uh, using you're using medical uh, marijuana, um, in which case you're getting more than just CBD. But that's again <laughs> another another discussion. So um, I just can't recommend it right now, and I think as if more data emerges, suggesting that it's very very useful. Then the next problem that I have with this is that the CBD that you're getting over the counter is unregulated, uh, meaning that there's nobody making CBD or products with a uh, certificate of good manufacturing process that's informed for sport, like safe, etc. Uh, and then contaminations, the studies on the contaminants found in CBD products, are I mean, they're overwhelming. Their toxicology papers are just, I mean the stuff that people are getting in there. Oh man, it's scary. It's scary. And, uh, the different dosing and just, yeah. So I think early adopters are probably missing the mark right now. And probably there's some nefarious activity with why they're recommending this so hard. Um, you know, the, it works for me fallacy is hard to deal with, with, with people who are not scientists, but look, I, I'm not concerned if it worked for you or a friend, particularly if that friend is getting paid by the company who makes the CBD oil. Um, that's not a, a valid scientific study. You have all sorts of biases going into the it works for me fallacy. fallacy and uh, yeah, I'm unconcerned with, your, uh, with an uncontrolled observation. Um, and so when we actually put it to the test, when we look at the existing data... Yeah, CBD, I can't recommend it. Uh, I recommend against it uh, right now, outside again, the uh, rare congenital seizure disorders. So, wanted to say thanks for the great content. Recently did my first palatine meet using 12 week strength program, total 1320, PRN squat 501, deadlift 539, went six for nine, and placed second in 93 kilo class. Ben, dude, that's sick. It reminds me of my first meet. My first meet, 2011, weighed in 176 pounds. It was a, in a gym. <laughs> no, you're like, yeah, no shit, dude. No, it was in a, a commercial or, or a uh, school gym, rather, like, you know, with all the basketball uh, uh, backboards pulled up out of the way. Yeah. Uh, what did I do? So I went at 176. I squatted 200 kilos, 440. I bench 303 and a half, uh, which is 137 and a half kilos. I only got my opening bench. I don't know. I don't know why I even try to cut weight either like that. I thought that the weight cut kind of hurt me, but I remember they're using this stupid Ivanko barbell. The Ivanko barbell has got a very narrow, like smooth part before the knurling starts. So a standard knurling, I think is 16 or 16 and a half inches, like knurl to knurl. And then the Ivanko bar is like 14 inches. And then it's got three power rings, three score marks in the thing. None of them are standardized. And you're like, where do I grip this thing? I couldn't figure it out. So between that and the weight cut, I don't know, not a great, not a great performance, but I did bench 303 and my first my first meet, 176, and then I pulled 540. So I think we might have totaled the same. I don't know offhand. Yeah. Nice job, man. Uh, hey, man, glad I could steal you from Max for a picture at Nationals. I think you would have been a great asset to the cupping station. <laughs> if you guys are new to following me and you you missed my birthday celebration, this is also like a going away party. Uh, my friends threw me in Santa Cruz when I before I moved down here. They threw me. It was like a placebo party. There was like a cupping station. There was like a, uh, you know, uh, re- reflexology posters all over the place. There was CBD oil, collagen protein. I mean, they were just really trolled me hard, which means that we're good friends. So, yeah, I'm glad that I missed the cupping station at uh, Raw Nationals. Form is great on the deadlift, but somehow still managed to tweak my back. Any thoughts on how I'm getting injured? Yeah, Yeah. So just earlier in this pod, well, it's not a podcast. It's a live Q&A thing. We talked about load management and again that's not just external load which would be weight reps sets velocity like range of motion velocity etc this is internal load um so how you experience all of those things uh so yeah i think load management is problematic there i would not associate uh form quote unquote on deadlifts with back tweaks to begin with and i'm writing an article on this This is going to be my next 20 pager um so here's here's the thing uh, neutral spine is actually a pretty large range of motion. Um, it's between, um, you know, a couple degrees shy of full flexion and a couple degrees shy of full extension that um, de- requires more explanation. but there's not just one, oh, that's neutral spine. There's a lot of, you know, relatively large amount of movement there uh, compared to just this, oh, that one position that's quote unquote neutral. Uh, sure, you have uh, cadaver studies where people rip the spines out of cadavers and they flex them a bunch of times and the discs herniated. Okay. But you cannot squat, deadlift, kettlebell swing, literally literally any sort of movement that involves hip extension or hip flexion to hip extension without flexing the spine. Um, You get a lot of flexion in a a kettlebell swing, for example, or a golf swing, um, for example. And you don't see this increase in uh, disc herniations in sports where there's a lot of uh, 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 spinal flexion either. Um, like golf. In fact, they have lower than average um, uh, amount of discarniations. But that's not even the point because discarniations aren't even related to low back pain outside of like two to 5% of cases. So, you know, next question is like, well, would you want to, why would you even want to have a quote unquote neutral spine or a flat back in a deadlift? You know, why? Uh, It appears to be a little bit more efficient for most lifting mechanics. There's obviously some people who tend to have a performance advantage by, um, uh, when they round their, uh, or flex their uh, lumbar spine. But uh, in most performance tasks where this actually has been tested, yeah, a neutral spine tends to do better than a flexed spine, um, even though it doesn't actually connote any increased injury risk. So the biggest problem is that you have hardline coaches, well, hardline's not a company, I mean, I'm sure it is, but what I mean by hardline is people who are saying it's black and white, good form, bad form. Um, it's like, okay, one, define those things, and then two, show evidence to support like this arbitrary line in the sand. When people do this hardline thing like rounding your back in the deadlift or the squat is bad and you'll get injured, they're no in you. They're hurting you potentially because now you have this stupid model in your brain like, oh, if I do this, I'm going to hurt myself. And it's like, okay, by what mechanism? So anyway, if you have low back pain, I think it's a load management thing. It's probably going to resolve on its own. Um, and so I would just be looking at your programming. That's that's what I would address first, yeah. When calories and protein are controlled, does glycemic index matter? Hmm. Um, for what? If it's all getting turned to sugar by your body anyways, refined carbohydrate, any worse for you than more complex carbs? Again, it's for what? If you're talking about for weight loss or weight preventing weight regain, if you're talking about for LDL cholesterol, if you're talking about for insulin sensitivity, potentially uh, diabetes outcomes like a hemoglobin A1C, yeah, it matters because you're talking about uh, a total fiber intake. So best outcomes are uh, for fiber intakes, between 25 to 29 grams per day on a minimum. Um, and once you're achieving that, your total calories are correct. Uh, you know, you're going to be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Could you expand on the statement you guys have made in the past in regards to most people actually being undertrained? Yeah, most people, in fact, are undertrained. So, from a population level, for just looking at the United States, uh, about 40% of individuals meet the aerobic, the current aerobic guidelines set forth in the 2018 Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans. Okay, which you can look that up, it's free. All right. Uh, and only about 20% of those who are of the 40% are meeting the resistance training guidelines, which is to resistance train twice per week. So by definition, plenty of people are undertrained. trained so, because most of them aren't even training. Uh, and in addition, the ones who are, are probably under-trained as well. So, uh, and if you just restrict like, you know, this thing to powerlifting, I think particularly in the United States, there's just this pervasive sort of conventional wisdom that, you know, you don't want to do too much because you need to recover. And certainly recovery is important. I'm not denying that. But I think you, you, you have two potential models in your brain for why you're not getting better. So one is that I'm just not recovering enough. I'm not recovering enough. And so the way you would manage that is to train less so that you could recover more. The other thing is I'm not doing enough to get better, which is that's the view that I have. So not only do you have to do more, but then the time between when you're actually applying the training stress, right, and generating the training fatigue to the actual fitness adaptation, the time to realize that is probably going to stretch out too. Although I would argue that you don't need to necessarily dissipate fatigue to have a fitness adaptation. What you really need to do is have the amount of fitness adaptations that you're developing, that you're generating, the positive aspects outweigh the negative aspects from training induced fatigue. So you can, you all know that you can perform, uh, or have performed very well at a high level while you still have a bunch of training fatigue on board, uh, or life fatigue, right? It's like training when you're hungover, training, when you're tired, you accidentally PR. Oops. How did that happen? If it's, if you didn't dissipate all this fatigue, on the other hand, you know, that you've trained like crap, performed like crap. When you've dissipated a bunch of fatigue, you went on vacation for a week. You didn't train at all. You came back, missed your top set just a little more nuanced than that so most people by definition just are not training <laughs> just you know 80 percent of the united states population is not doing resistance training at all the 20 percent who are engaging in that i would wager most of them are undertrained. and uh yeah most people are undertrained. let's see are those hats for sale these hats the dad hats uh they're gonna be for sale pretty soon so make sure you get those I think we made a substantial amount of them because I didn't want to run out for the Christmas slash Hanukkah season. So you're welcome. I like when people ask me like, "What is your opinion on this person?" Like, who am I to judge the character of somebody's you know somebody else? If you want to ask me a particular thing that they said, that you have a question about, I'm cool with that. Uh, I probably won't name them because I don't want to you know start any internet beefs. So I've done that for too long. But if you ask me like thoughts on person uh i don't know that i think about other people like that particularly in the fitness industry uh, that much just as a as a person i think about some things they've said some egregious claims they've maybe made but i don't think about them like i wonder if they're a good person i wonder who they vote for i wonder like do they donate to charity i just don't let's see have run several strength focus templates in a row 12 week strength powerlifting two Looking to focus on losing weight for the next several months. Should I do power building two or hypertrophy two? If it were me, uh, I'd probably do hypertrophy two. Uh Power building two, you could actually go back and forth on them. Power building two's just got more of a specificity uh, towards the big three, squat, bench, deadlift. If you don't necessarily, so if you really enjoy those lifts, they would kind of make your training world go round. You know, I would do power building two, but if you would like a break, you know and you want to gauge in some more conditioning stuff, I think hypertrophy 2 is probably a, a better choice. You can go back and forth so you don't like lose your uh, 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 zeal for doing the big three if that's important to you. Um, and so, yeah, we do sell training templates, it's kind of our entry level uh, sort of barbell medicine programming. If you're interested in our programming ideas and like how that would like actually manifest out into a program. We got a bunch of different templates that uh, are suited uh, for people at various different points of training with various different goals. You should check those out, the barbellmedicine.com website. If the goal is to increase muscle size, should we strive to get stronger? Yeah, so I know that you asked me this about two weeks ago and I answered you there. I think if you want to get larger muscles, then one thing uh, objectively that you'll be looking at is are my lifts and the rep ranges that I'm training them going up. In general, that would be a good sign that you're actually gaining lean body mass in addition to actual measurements. That being said, there are a lot of different ways to generate the stimulus to drive muscle growth that don't involve necessarily a lot of heavy resistance training in the low repetition range. So, yeah how best to reprogram my squat after a nine month herniated disc that caused bad sciatica and left leg left leg is weak and not firing the way I want it to. Yeah. I wouldn't do anything differently about uh, approaching your squat training than somebody else who is new to the squat and hasn't uh, been or, and or who hasn't been training it for a while. So I think uh, you know, being cautious initially uh, with the training load and training volume. So, and I would train in multiple different rep ranges and uh, you know, I think if you want to do squat variations, since you have a little more experience, you could start that from the beginning. So you might have one day of back squats, one day of pause squats, and another day of leg press. You could also make the leg press unilateral, one leg at a time, so you can actually, you know, if you want to focus uh, on uh, on unilateral strength, I think that's a totally reasonable thing. That's I like split squats and uh, step ups and stuff like that as well. But uh, you know, I think a leg press can be useful here too. Does micronized creatine monohydrate have any benefits when compared to just creatine monohydrate? No. And uh, I did a creatine video on the YouTubes, which I would uh, recommend you guys watch if you haven't seen it already. Hey doc, I'm starting to create content for my client athletes and circle of influence and would like to bring awareness to you and your content via occasional referencing. Would you be okay with that? I would be flattered. See, one of the best things that you guys can do, guys and gals, sorry, it's 2019 and try to be inclusive. Um, one of the best things that you guys can do is to share this stuff with your friends and family. And, you know, I don't mean in like an annoying evangelistic kind of way, but there are only so many of us involved in barbell medicine, right? And so we're trying to get the word out. We're trying to, to uh, help as many people as possible, but we can't do it without you. And so I'd love if you guys would share you know this video or this q a or some of our posts or whatever you feel like is you know uh uh within your uh within your purview and something that you would normally do share it with your friends family people you go to the gym with whatever what is your opinion on the fact that louis simmons has people do more box squatting than regular squatting would you ever do this yourself i mean maybe somebody preferred box squatting and they weren't a competitive powerlifter sure uh, but I don't necessarily concern myself with what Louis does, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I, you know, he doesn't concern himself with what I do, and I don't concern himself with what he does because I think that he, when he talks about powerlifting, he's talking about a different sport than I am. Um, it's you know, gear in a particular federation with particular standards that are different than the powerlifting that I've competed in. Um, so you know, that being said, I'm not married to a regular squat that doesn't involve a box for people who aren't competing yeah how do you approach exercise selection when creating general strength programs yeah so i'd refer you to the beginner prescription or uh uh, which is the free version of our beginner template Uh, the beginner template also comes with like a 70 page ebook that really details how we came up with that program which includes a section on exercise selection So there's no such thing as general strength. All strength is specific. It's specific to the rep range you train it in, it's specific to the range of motion, the velocity, the contraction types, all sorts of things. The degree that one exercise improves performance in another exercise is called transference uh, or carryover. And the more closely related two exercises are via those, again, the range of motion, the contraction type, velocity, Etc. cetera, uh, the more closely that they're they're or the more likely they're going to carry over to each other. So, uh, for a general trainee, the person who's not going to go compete in a barbell sport, instead of specializing on a few exercises, I would like to have a broader base of physical development that I would build for them until they wanted to specialize if they did. So I would not just use one type of squat variation or even really mandate that they squat. I really just want loaded hip and knee, uh, hip and knee movement. (laughs) Right? Like, uh, so the same thing with a deadlift, I wouldn't necessarily make sure that they do a conventional deadlift or sumo deadlift. They could do a trap bar deadlift, you know? Um, yeah, so I have way less restriction. And then Finally, we know that from a motor learning standpoint, when you're trying to actually learn um, how to move your body, for instance, in space and, and develop all these motor programs, um, particularly when it comes to non-standard uh, or movements that are different each time, um, that you would want a wider variety of movements. People learn faster that way and people have more robust development uh, of these motor programs. So wouldn't hyper-specialize just from a, uh a a sort of uh training development standpoint. We want more proficiency in more movements rather than proficiency in less movements. And then I also think people learn better that way. So hopefully that makes sense. But if you want a further explanation, we talk about this extensively in both the free barbell prescription, which is our free uh version of the beginner template, and then also the paid version, which we go into this in a lot more depth. Let's see, why is my general practitioner telling me that I don't need more than 50 to 70 grams of protein even though I told him I trained? Well, a, f- a few questions. One, why did you ask him? Because it's unlikely that this person uh, is up to date on the current information. Um, so right now, the current uh, RDA uh, guidelines suggest point, uh, what is it, point eight? Uh, grams of uh, protein per kilo body weight per day. The current ESPEN or ASPEN, European or American uh, Society for uh, Nutrition recommends that most individuals get between 1.2 and 2.0 grams per kilos and this it becomes more and more important as people age uh, because they become more and more anabolically resistant and this is one of the, the primary prevention uh, tools against sarcopenia and other um, age-related uh, weakness and, and muscle loss. So The final part of this is, uh, if you look at actual guidelines from the International Society on Sports Nutrition or International Athletic Association, uh, I forget the last part of their acronym, or if you look at the NSCA or the ACSM, the recommendations are that individuals should uh, consume anywhere between 1.6 to uh, 2.5, all the way up to 3.1 grams. Uh, protein per kilo uh, body weight per day and as far as where you fit in the range depends on if you're losing weight, gaining weight, maintaining weight and your needs. So the recommendation that's actually based on very good evidence uh, that I would give to you is to consume 1.6 to uh, about two and a half grams of protein per kilo body weight per day. If you're gaining weight, 1.6 grams per kilo body weight per day is fine. If you're losing weight, I'd ratchet that up. Um, yeah. And, uh, we discussed this at length in uh, one of our previous newsletter articles, actually. So if you haven't signed up for a newsletter, you get stuff like this in your inbox every month. Yeah. What can I replace milk and whey with? I like milk because of the amount of protein, but it hurts my stomach. Yeah. So you could try a lactose free version of milk. If you like that, you could also try a lactase pill to see, uh, if that's, you know, if you just don't tolerate dairy, if that's the thing if uh and i would expect you to still be able to tolerate whey with water so you try that if you can't tolerate the whey with water one thing that people tend you know commonly have reactions to is a whey protein concentrate with the beta lactalbumin you might try to do a whey protein isolate my recommendation would be try the whey with water first if that doesn't work for you try to find a whey protein isolate buy a pound of it see if that works with water Um, and then you don't need to take a protein supplement though really if you are getting your dietary protein in from other sources, so any sort of uh, any protein source really. If you like eggs, if you like uh, chicken, fish, lean meats, um, if you like yogurt, Greek yogurt, you know dairy works well if you can tolerate it. But sounds like that's not a an option for you. Uh, but there are plenty of options out there. Another non-training question. What is your method with getting your beard line while trimming your neck? Digging the thicker beard, man. Oh, beard questions. So, uh, yeah, on the neck, I just use um, – I have a an Andis T trimmer. That's just my little – what I use to line up down here. And then I use a safety razor to shave. That's it. Yeah, not, no real special technique. Yeah. Are those blue light glasses? No, these are real glasses because I am losing my eyesight. (laughs) Do you think isolation exercises are more beneficial than compound lifts for hypertrophy? I'm thinking that isometric is simply a requirement of volume plus frequency behind a certain point of exposure to training. Uh, I I mean, I don't necessarily think so when you look at primary movers. So for instance, like quadriceps in the squat, for example, uh, I don't necessarily know that isolation movements are any better than them. I do think that when training resources dwindle, that one way to get in additional training volume, additional training stress, particularly uh, to drive more hypertrophy, um, you can do isolation exercises, but secondary movers probably respond a little bit better to isolation exercises. Um, also, you can take isolation exercises to failure or, close to, or closer to failure, but also to failure with a little bit less detrimental effects. And then... Uh, Again, uh, you know, training um, uh, or trying to achieve muscular hypertrophy, you know, the maximum improvement that you can via just compound lifts is probably not going to work for for most folks um, because you're going to need to do more training volume, uh, more frequency, and then ultimately fatigue becomes a problem that you need to Uh, uh, that you need to deal with and isolation exercises are one way to do that but I don't, as far as one better than the other for primary movers, eh, probably not secondary movers, you make a better case for that but you could also find ways to train around them Um, but in the grand scheme of things a hypertrophy program would have both, probably let's see viability of a vegan diet for a strength athlete. Yeah, so this is the last question we'll answer tonight. Uh, Yeah, I think that if you wanna be a vegan or vegetarian, as long as you're getting in the correct amount of calories and total daily protein, you're gonna be fine. In fact, the research from multiple different uh, studies showing that as long as you're getting the correct dose of protein, that the training outcomes are either no different or very, very similar, so much so that any difference that's statistically significant, is probably not clinically significant, Um, uh, because of the inter-individual variation in training response. So if someone wants to be vegan, if someone wants to be a vegetarian, cool. We also make a a nice pea protein isolate called, uh, vegan RX. It's got the same essential amino acid content as our whey protein, um, which is good. So if you have a vegan friend, vegetarian friend, and they need a protein supplement, there you go. Okay. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'm about to get kicked off here because I've been here for like an hour uh again sign up for our newsletter it's coming out we're going to give you guys first access to the black friday deals um, also we got a bunch of great information that goes out every month um so if you're not signed up for that do that barbell medicine apparel we got a new matt merch over there We've got a baseball tee you've got competition tees pre-order for the sbd singlets coming out uh and then yeah i hope everybody is having a great monday thank you so much for tuning in see you guys later